You're listening to Faith in Politics, presented by Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. This week on the podcast, we have an interview with Baroness Farsi. Julian Bond at Methodist Church House joins us for the monthly musing. And as ever, there's our rundown of this month's news. Hello and welcome back to our podcast, Faith in Politics. Helen, how has your month been? My month? Um, well, I'm enjoying Parliament while we can, basically. Um, very strangely now they're recruiting for our successors and in four months time not only will you have new podcast hosts there will be new one interns as well Um, so I'm just soaking up every minute Um, so the undisclosed party that I work for (laughs) is doing a lot of stuff on special educational needs at the minute and provisions or lack thereof which is very exciting and important work that no one else is speaking about as much as they should so I'm very much enjoying the challenge that sounds really interesting so like what what kind of specific things are you doing at the moment on that? Um, so basically two years ago a Families Act came in which is meant to sort the fact that the provision for children with special educational needs is absolutely woeful. Um, needless to say there wasn't necessarily much movement um, largely because there isn't really enough literacy around special educational needs um, because the funding for councils isn't necessarily there. Um, so this is just trying to press for some actual genuine progress and for the funding to be in place so the children can get the education they deserve, regardless of any mm-hmm. special educational needs that they have. Oh, well, that's a really good course you're working towards. Um, so I've, I've been doing lots of stuff in Parliament, as always, but the most interesting thing I've done this month probably is go to the Methodist Women in Britain conference, which happens every year in Swanwick. About 250 women from the Methodist Church come together, and they um, do craft and they do workshops and this year we talked about oceans of justice and rivers of fairness and one of the things that really inspired me was these women aren't really big activists usually they do a lot of work and a lot of fundraising and things but they're not kind of political in their in their kind of the way that they operate but what we got them to do this weekend was um we got them to do some craftivism which i absolutely love um we asked them to embroider napkins to send their mps and a lot of them talked about poverty and hunger and every single lady there was attended a church that had a food bank which is just quite incredible i you know and they were so passionate and engaged and you saw them at lunchtime out sewing their napkins so i'm I'm looking forward to hearing the stories of what their mps make of their napkins Mm. i'm getting on with my own napkin actually it's terrible to think in that sense that the church does need to kind of step in where the state feels but it's even better and we should really stick on the positive side of the inspiring activist weekend that you had i think sometimes we all just need to sort of remind each other you know what we can do yeah definitely so the news this month lots has been going on well lots indeed um in the immigration world certainly a lot of great discussion um in all corners of the media about race i mean today is the 25th anniversary of the death of stephen lawrence we've had 50 years since enoch powell's rivers of blood speech um what's really tied in with this i suppose has been the windrush scandal i think no matter where you get your news this would have been extremely hard to avoid Um, and for very good reason. Um, So on the off chance that you are unaware, uh, the Windrush generation are migrants who came to Britain from Caribbean countries anywhere between 1948 and 1971. Um, So basically, there's a threat of deportation for people who have lived and worked in the countries for, for decades, if not longer. And this is all part of words, hopefully, people will have heard by now, the hostile environment. 
So basically, as part of the hostile environment policy, it's something that asks us to prove constantly who we are, why we're in the country, the fact that we're entitled to be there in the first place. Measures range from insufficient access to healthcare um, if they can't prove their status. And we see a lot of people pushed into the shadow economy by virtue of the fact that they don't necessarily have the right documents to prove that they are meant to be um, here in the first place. Um, another sort of very notable measure would be right to rent, whereby um, migrants who don't necessarily have the right papers um, won't necessarily be given housing. Um, landlords who rent to them can be fined up to five grand and given sentences of five years. Um, I mean, I was speaking to a reverend from one of our churches um, just this morning who'd said that there were sort of people who'd maybe been through the asylum system unsuccessfully or undocumented migrants who needed emergency NHS care that they couldn't access. Uh, so this is how far-flown and how consequential consequential um, this this policy really is. And the difficult, what Theresa May has said in her defence, um, or what David Gawke, rather the Justice um, Secretary, has said, it's basically that it was the implementation of this policy that was the problem, and not the policy itself. Well, I don't think that that necessarily can be said. This wasn't a good policy poorly implemented. This was a bad policy implemented exactly as it was intended. And with every risk assessment of every measure of different aspects of this hostile environment, whether it be bank accounts, whether it be the different NHS regulations that came in, Theresa May was warned. There were warnings that this would lead to racial profiling, um, that this would lead to an effect, as much as I don't like to draw arbitrary lines between good and bad migrants or who you know deserves X entitlements and who doesn't, that this would affect far more people than it was originally intended to affect. And not only have we heard in the last few days um, did Theresa May sort of bat these warnings away, um, but she, she forced this policy through, even so. So it's a scandal, and it's brilliant that this is actually finally getting the media attention that it deserves. Now, who do you think is responsible? Who, would, who do you want to take the responsibility for this? Um, well, I think Theresa May and Amber Rudd should take the responsibility. And Amber Rudd has, in a sense, like it was very, it was, it was lovely to hear on Monday, and this is absolutely the crux of it all for me. As she said, sometimes the Home Office gets lost in strategy and policy, and more so of net migration targets, and forgets that this is about individuals. Um, it can be very easy to forget when we're not exposed to the scale of injustice and it's not covered enough in the media, um, just what this means for people and the sheer, magne yeah, the sheer magnitude um, of this policy. So I'm just delighted that there's that someone cares and that so many people in the last week or so will have learned the words hostile environment and learned what that means for people all over Britain. Yeah, it's, it's been a massive issue and we'll just have to wait to see what happens really. Um, you'll hear later in the interview that we talked to Baroness Vars about the hostile environment as well and she gives an interesting perspective too. The other big thing, which I mean is ongoing, it's not just been happening this month, but particularly interesting things that are happening this month, um, are that the Lords voted in favour of an amendment which would require the government to put an agreement in front of the House, um, an, an EU agreement in front of the House, um, which to be debated and voted on, which had some form of customs union within it. Now, this wasn't surprising. The Lords are pro um, the EU, um, they're mainly Ramonas, as some would say. And so this wasn't a surprising win, but it was quite a substantial win for the Lords, and so that, that made it more interesting. And because of that, 
Um, the Commons have, are having a debate today on the Customs Union, which some of the um, remoteners, as they're called, um, are the very strategically placed um, cross-party, a very strategically placed cross-party group, including people like Nicky Morgan, Yvette Cooper, Hilary Benn, Anna Subri, Angus McNeil, Norman Lamb, Rachel Reeves, Pete Washart. There's loads and loads of people um, who want to get behind, are getting behind this and trying to push the government to have a customs union. I think it's an interesting time. This vote means very little. It's just a debate, and then they're going to push it to a vote, and that doesn't bind the government to it to anything. What we'll have to do is wait for the ping pong of the EU withdrawal bill when it goes back and forth, and um, and see how the vote then, at probably towards the end of May, how that goes. But it could put pressure on the government to change its negotiation negotiating position, which would be interesting. But number 10 has released a statement today saying we're not changing our negotiating position, and we're staying as we are, we're going to leave the customs union because um, they believe, and probably rightly so, that if we get into a customs union with the EU, we won't be able to make trade agreements with other countries around the world, which is how the customs union works. But it would really help the situation in Northern Ireland if we stayed in the customs union. So there's pros and cons, um, but you know this win by the Lords and then the forced debate and possibly a forced vote this evening will be really interesting to see on such a contentious issue um, how, how the Commons start to feel. Because the Conservatives don't have an overall majority, so we'll wait and see what happens. Gripping stuff. But now on to the monthly musing with Julian Bond. Happy St George's Day. I'm recording this on the 23rd of April, which is the date of the patron saint of England. As someone from Wales, I never thought that I would embrace St George. But before I started working at the Methodist Church, I used to run the Christian Muslim Forum. And we took a keen interest in anyone who was engaging with issues around attitudes towards the Muslim community. And one of the things that we noticed back in 2012 was how Christian imagery and associations and the flag of St George were being used by organisations like the English Defence League and the British National Party as a sort of rallying cry against Muslims. And it became clear after just a tiny little bit of thought that St George wasn't English anyway. So they'd totally hijacked and distorted and mistreated him. And we began to look into who he was and where he came from. And he seems to have been born in Turkey. He was a soldier in the Roman army. And he is the patron saint of Palestine, as well as various other places, so not English at all. In fact, very multicultural. And the idea of him being multicultural rather than racist, which is the thing that you would pick up very easily from some of this negative messaging, was something that we thought would provide a useful challenge to anyone who was saying that foreigners didn't belong in England or Britain, that Muslims weren't welcome, and all these kind of either very strong or casual racist attitudes. And when I was putting together the beginnings of a campaign, I found 
a report which talked about the difficulty which British and English people had with the St George's flag and it said that the primary association for a quarter of the people that they surveyed was that it was a sign which was racist. So if you think about that for a moment, the national flag being racist and being seen as racist. So we set about trying to reclaim St George and reclaim the flag and we had a campaign which people were able to sign up to. We launched it on St George's Day 2013 and we had Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims and all kinds of people signing up to this campaign that St George was a multicultural figure and that we wanted to reclaim him and that he didn't belong to extremists and racists and Islamophobes. And we are more now reflecting on where we are as a nation and the relationships between different nations and how we fit into Europe and all kinds of negativity has found its voice through Brexit but we are pondering where we are as a nation and I haven't come across very much of St George being used as a flag for racists. Welcome back to the Faith and Politics podcast. Um, this week we're interviewing Baroness Farsi. Um, for those of you who don't know Baroness Farsi, she grew up in Dewsbury, the second daughter of five, in a working class household, with her dad being a factory worker and a bus driver before starting a bed building business. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, <laughs> which Baroness Farsi has taken over with her sister recently. She went to study law at the University of Leeds and then became a lawyer. She stood for election in Dewsbury in 2005, failed to get elected, um, but became a peer in 2007 and has held the offices of Cabinet Minister Without Portfolio, Minister for Faith and Communities and Senior Minister to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office until she resigned over the government's policy on Palestine. She has been outspoken critic of the government's policy on terrorism and the Casey Review of Integration in the UK and has time and time again been a strong advocate for interfaith relations, even addressing the Pope in Vatican City. She has recently published a brilliant book called An Enemy Within, The Tale of British Muslims, which is an essential read for anyone who wants to understand Britain today. So what was it like meeting the Pope to start with? Oh, it was an amazing uh, experience. I mean, I, um, I've always described myself as a bit of a shy Catholic, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've um, always been fascinated with the church generally, but also specifically with the, with the Catholic church. And, uh, and, um, and, and I think right now we're so privileged to have the Pope that we have from Pope Francis. And um, I think f for me, not just having the opportunity to meet the Holy Father, but also have the opportunity to address um, the um, cardinals at the um, and the archbishops at the um, ecclesiastical academy, and talk about my experience as uh, uh, somebody of minority faith within Europe, which is um, majority uh, Christian, uh, was just a real privilege. So, in your address to the um, to the academy, you talked about Europe needing to be confident in its Christianity to foster good interfaith relationships. Um, how do you think? we can do interfaith relationships better in the UK and what do we need to do to make them better? I think there is a, a false uh, belief that if all of us dumb down our views and our beliefs and our identities that somehow we'd all get on better. 
And the argument that I was making uh, at the Vatican, the argument I've made consistently, is that it's when you yourself have a weak identity that you feel threatened by other people's strong identities. Whereas if we were all sure of who we are, it would be much easier to accept other people for whom they are. Um, and so, you know, it was the point that I made when um, I spoke at the Vatican to say that Europe needs to be sure about its Christian heritage and its own identity and not be fearful of others who are now amongst us in our nations with, with strong faith identities from a different tradition. Do you think it's important that faith groups and religions get more involved in politics as a way of bringing them back into the fore and having better conversations about that kind of thing? Well, one of the arguments that I made when we first came into government in 2010 was that faith groups needed to have the opportunity to play a much bigger role uh, in decision-making. So I wasn't talking here about theocracy. What I was saying was that religion, which has for thousands of years been an informer of the debate, should continue to be an informer of the debate. Not the final say, not a way in which you make decisions, but actually just part of the conversation. They should be one of the voices around the table. And in the House of Lords, you know, where I sit, we have the privilege of having faith voices uh, which are an integral part of the debate that happens in the House of Lords and I think the same should be reflected uh, in, uh, in government as well. So you, you agree that it's a good idea to have bishops in the House of Lords? Yes. Okay because I guess we come from free churches and therefore for us it's a difficult relationship with how do we get our voices heard in comparison to the bishops but yeah. but I think there is important. but I think it's important for us to have strong faith voices within the house of lords whether that should be just the bishops or whether it should be much broader is definitely a debate that we can have but I don't think that the answer is to actually pull the bishops out of the house of lords because I think creating a much more secular space would take away from some of the quality of the debates that we have and often what we found it find I find is that what can sort sometimes become quite fraught party political issues uh, can be dealt with better by the bishops who are seen as quite neutral I think from a party political perspective and therefore much more likely to be listened to in what are often important uh, critical debates for our nation. Yeah actually interestingly last week I was talking to somebody in the Labour Whips office who was saying that they've got a bishop heading up one of their amendments because that goes down better with the house just the way that they're respected so it's really interesting um, insight into the house of Lords, um, but going back to sort of um, your political history, many people from your background are from where you've come from in the north, um, are Labour Party members, um, and the majority of Muslims in the UK would say probably support Labour. So, how did you um, end up in the Conservative Party? Um, I think if you look at the way in which most British Muslims are brought up, they're brought up in very conservative circumstances. Uh, their lifestyles are very conservative. They live quite frugal lives. You know, it's. Um, uh, they're very much focused on entrepreneurship. They want to go out and work hard and keep most of what they earn. They have a responsibility. I mean, if you look at the concept of zakat, for example, charity, taxation, if you want to call it, within uh, Islamic principles, it sits at 2.5%. As a Muslim, we fundamentally believe in a low-tax economy. I think my conservative upbringing as a Muslim and my conservative values as a politician are very much in tune um, and so therefore, you know, I, I've always considered myself to be a centre-right politician, uh, whether it's economically um, or socially. Um, and so I found my natural home ideologically within the Conservative Party. 
are there challenges of course there are i think my history's got you know we're, we're talking now uh, this week about the rivers of blood speech by enoch powell yes my history my party does have a history of not being entirely welcoming of people from ethnic minority backgrounds and therefore as somebody from an ethnic minority background that that is a challenge i continue to fight. I mean, I feel that my party's understanding of British Muslim communities is limited. I think there are real issues of Islamophobia within my party, and I've raised them consistently with uh, colleagues and have done so publicly. So I think it's still a learning process for, for the Conservative Party, and it still has challenges. But I think ideologically on most issues, I would find myself within the Conservative Party. And how do you feel about, you've spoken in interviews relatively recently about the sort of swing to the right that the Conservative Party seems to be making at the moment and the polarisation of politics of both sides, do you still feel um, that you can be part of that party? And, you know, has that affected your opinion of your party and your political... I think there are many people within the Labour Party who right now feel like the Labour Party isn't familiar and isn't the home for them. There are many people within the Conservative Party who feel very similarly about the Conservative Party. In fact, there are, there are so in the Liberal Democrats. I think the polarisation of politics isn't just something that's happening in the UK, it's happening across Europe, in fact, in the US. Um, and part of the role of, you know, I often find myself sat with Labour and Lib Dem colleagues lamenting the state of our parties. Um, I think there are so many of us who do want our parties to come back into the centre ground, move away from the far right or the far left. And uh, those of us who are engaged in politics on the front line have to carry on making that case because we are all custodians of our party and we need to make sure that we don't allow our parties to go to into those spaces where effectively they are committing self-harm as political parties, but also not great for our country. Let's just go back to something you said before about um, the 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 Conservative Party's problem with ethnic minorities and immigration. What's your reflection on the wind, the Windrush scandal? As it's, it's been, been an awful, sorry affair. And I think it's wrong for us to write it off as a mistake. It certainly wasn't a mistake. I think it was a policy uh, position that was deliberately implemented at the Home Office. The issue of immigration was one which was contentiously debated during the time that I was in Cabinet. During the coalition years, there was a constant... Um, uh, kind of tussle between many departments and the Home Office who wanted to adopt, the Home Office wanted to adopt a much harsher position, whether it was in relation to students coming into the UK, whether it was in relation to refugees, um, unaccompanied minors. Um, I think the Home Office took a deliberate decision to, to focus on numbers and to do all it could to keep people out and to remove people who it felt it could remove. And I think that the children of the Windrush generation were those that got caught up in that. And um, I think there needs to be some serious soul searching about not just about the implications on the Windrush generation, but what other implications this um, harsh environment, which was created by the Home Office on, on Immigration, has led to. Um, Amber Rudd's being, today is being called um, to resign by um, Diane Abbott, so we'll see what happens there. Well, it wasn't Amber actually who was there who was when it was no, first introduced. I think it goes much yeah. further than that. I think this does, unfortunately, you know, go all the way to the doorstep of the Prime Minister. Mm. Um, and I think that's why it was right that Theresa May took personal responsibility for this and apologised. Yeah. So on to your new book, um, which is brilliant. And as somebody who studies um, religion and politics at university with a particular interest in British Muslims, um, it's a joyous read to read something that's so personal and has all the statistics. I mean, it's full of statistics and information. Um, 
you talk a lot um, about kind of the causes of terrorism and one thing that's often brought about is brought up is especially from the far left I would say saying that oh it's about foreign policy um, is it about foreign policy or is there a broader problem in the UK with socioeconomic issues do you think oh, the, the, I mean what makes somebody a terrorist what makes somebody a, a, a violent uh, a terrorist is, is something that academics have studied for many many years I mean people have looked at their profiles of people who've committed terrorist attacks and have therefore unpicked what the overriding you know overlapping characteristics are uh, which um, uh, which can be seen in all these different uh, terrorists and there are something like 17 to about 29 different telltale signs that somebody is likely to be a, a terrorist um, and, and and so it's not as simple as it's just foreign policy or it's just socio-economic or it's just ideology or it's just and I think one, one of the points that I make in the book is that it's all of these and if we're going to have a comprehensive counter-terrorism strategy then it has to look at all these various factors whereas at the moment the government likes to focus on ideology other parts of politics like to focus on, po on poverty others focus on foreign policy well actually no we have to focus on all of these issues um, and I think that's the argument that I well that is the argument that I make in my book to say that policy making around this area has just been too narrow yeah but there is a problem in the UK with um, a big socio-economic issue with religious minorities not just Muslims but Sikhs and, and Hindus and for example Muslims are three times more likely to be unemployed than Christians do you think there's not enough addressed on that side um, of the policy do you think the prevent program hasn't helped that it's kind of looked at other reasons mm. instead or, or what's your opinion on prevent well i mean my, uh, you know one of the things i say in the book is i was born and raised in dewsbury as was um, muhammad sadiq khan who was the lead 77 bomber what is the you know what how is it that one you know somebody in Dew, from dewsbury could end up becoming the first muslim cabinet minister but could also become the lead suicide bomber in uh, in July 2005 sorry and I just find that it's you know again you have to go back and unpick those stories I don't think just because you grew up in a deprived home that you're likely to become a terrorist there are some mm. some very successful young men and women who've gone on to become terrorists it is a combination of factors um, for example issues around identity issues around um, previous criminality uh, issues around mental health um, th there are so many different factors and I think that policy making has to be far more sophisticated in responding to this challenge yeah um, something that I um, discovered when I was looking into this was um, a quote which um, I think from what I read from your book you talk about um, different terrorist acts being given different precedents and if it's done by somebody who fits the MO you know, so is a Muslim, it gets more um, traction with the press. And you talk very um, well about um, a case that I wasn't even aware of. And so, um, Fisk, who's um, somebody that I've read quite a lot at university, says um, that terrorism has lost its meaning as a word. It's just a political contrivance. Terrorists are those who use violence against the side using the word. Do you think we have a problem with actually the word itself? Well, there's a whole chapter in the book called What is Terrorism? Yeah. Uh, and I unpick the history of terrorism and, and where the term came from and how it's been used. Uh, and it is a politically charged phrase. Uh, ultimately, it's about us making a value judgment about the use of violence against uh, a group of people and where we stand. I mean, as I say in the book, you know, one, one generation's terrorists become another generation's freedom fighters one generation's terrorists become another generation's heroes uh, you know Nelson Mandela has been a typical example for those of, of, of my generation 
um, and and I also talk about how you know we need to focus on the act itself which causes harm rather than the identity of the perpetrator which is what we talk about uh, which is what I talk about in terms of um, uh, terrorism done by the far right I mean if you look in the US for example the vast majority of terrorism is committed not by um, uh, Muslims uh, it's in fact it's a tiny minority and I talk about that again in the book I give the exact statistics uh, and yet so often we'll find that when it is a you know a non-Muslim who's arrested for a terrorist offense all the plethora of reasons as to why they became a terrorist the very reasons that I talk about in the book are much more likely to be discussed whereas you know we're more likely to talk about their relationship breakdown their mental health issues confused sexuality their poverty their deprivation issues all of those issues are more likely to be discussed whereas if the terrorist is a Muslim then none of that will be discussed it will just be focused simply on the fact that he's of this particular faith and clearly that's what motivated him to do that so and, and again there's lots of studies now out there which have compared the media's response to different terrorist attacks and we we seem to deal with um, terrorism committed by anybody other than Muslims in a very different way to the way in which we deal with terrorism committed by people in the name of uh, Islam yeah do you think that's also a problem with kind of secularization in the UK that we don't understand religion as well and so if it be somebody sort of says this is a religious act we kind of take it on face value because we actually don't do religious education well enough for people to understand uh, what it's like to be a person of faith or what religion is. I mean, religious literacy is, has been on the decline for a number of years. Religiosity generally in Britain has been on the decline. If you look at the latest um, statistics and if you look at the um, Commission on Religion in Public Life, they um, looked at how people feel less religious, people talk about being identified don't identify with a religion and even those who identify with the religion don't believe in the basic tenets of it. Uh, there's been a general decline in, in um, Christian belief and Christian practice in the United Kingdom. So I think when you are dealing with a much more secular public space, I think it is harder for people to understand that some individuals might, you know, forget the issue of terrorism, but just generally religion, actually that some issue people might have deep religious faith and belief. Um, and I, you know, that's why I, I mean, I coined the phrase secular fundamentalism. We've got to be really careful that any sort of ideology, whether it's religion or a secular ideology, isn't so fundamental that it shuts out the space for other people to have a voice and a say. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about your book is, as I said earlier, is the personal stories that go through. And one of my favourite stories coming from Hull is um, the story about you going to the Humber Bridge yeah. and walking across it, which I think is lovely. I mean, um, my, oh, my dad <laughs> marches across that bridge in our best silky Punjabi outfits. I'm sure they were completely... I remember the scarves just thinking, we could have been blown off that bridge, you know, with all the amount of fabric we had on. Yeah, um, and is there something special about being from Yorkshire for you? And when you're here, is there something different about being a northerner in the heart of Westminster? Definitely. I mean, people, you know, I, I, people say to me, you know, you Muslim first or you British first, and I would say I'm Yorkshire before both. I think there is something quite unique about the Yorkshire identity. It forms your character. It forms the way in which you uh, conduct yourself. Um, you know, we are a kind of world <laughs> to ourselves, not just because we won so many Olympic medals, um, but because actually I think there is quite a, a specific characteristic of people who are born and raised in in Yorkshire. And it's it's a county that I'm incredibly proud of. It's still my home. It's still where I you know where I have my business. It's it's where my kids were educated. Um, and it's always uh, as that it's it's hope. My heart is always in Yorkshire, whatever else I may happen to be. Oh, well, that's wonderful for, as a fellow Yorkshire woman to hear. Um, 
do you, do you agree with um, devolution to Yorkshire then if you know, you're so passionate about the area do you think we could take our powers back and <laughs> um, run ourselves a bit differently well I think the whole debate around having mayors is part of that devolution process and it is a very real you know discussion happening right now about whether there will be a Yorkshire-wide <laughs> mayor uh, and I think ultimately it's got to be left to the people of Russia to decide. And I think having much more direct and immediate contact, somebody who seems to be fighting for your cause, certainly at a time where you know, the Northern Powerhouse really was created because it felt like there were large parts of Britain and the north of England that had been left behind. And, uh, and I think having a strong voice and a champion for Yorkshire in the form of a mayor, I think would be a great idea. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you. Um, and please tune in next month where we have Tim Farron on the podcast. You've been listening to Faith in Politics with Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. And just another note, um, if you like our jingle, the band who performed it, Fervour, have a new album out called Taking Flight. It's available on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your music. So go online and give it a listen. Thanks.